Well, once again, we have the joy of being able to look into the Word of God, and I would like to take you to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. We're going to look at several passages. We're going to look specifically at verses 18 through 25. I want to begin a little bit of a series leading up to Christmas on the whole concept of the incarnation of Christ. You know, our selfless devotion to Christ is the inevitable manifestation of the new birth. And what we find is that our love for Christ is proportional to our understanding of who he is. The more we know who he is, the more we will love him and the more we will serve him. And the enemy often uses the two-edged broadsword of doubt and discouragement to defeat us, especially when life gets difficult. We all know what that feels like. Between the sinfulness of our own heart and the, and the enemy that would try to discourage us, we can end up finding ourselves struggling in significant ways. But God has not left us defenseless. He has told us, for example, in Ephesians 6 to, to put on the helmet of salvation, literally the helmet which is salvation, which includes all of the glorious benefits of our salvation that Paul was talking about prior to saying that, that that he has made us alive together with Christ, that we have been saved, raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenlies, and all of those wonderful truths. And we need to appropriate, appropriate those realities. And part of what that includes is knowing who Christ is, And since we know that the enemy can defeat us if we're not careful and cause us to succumb to doubt and discouragement, we need to put on that helmet of salvation, which is going to be what we're doing this morning. By the way, he also said in that passage that we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? That is our offensive weapon against the enemy. We must not be like Christian, remember in, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, who, who encountered Apollyon and all of a sudden his sword fell out of his hand and Apollyon thought he was going to defeat him and he was gloating over him, but oh, Christian realized what he needed to do and he grabbed his sword once again and Apollyon sped away in defeat. So let's take up our swords this morning and I will tell you that much of what we're going to be looking at is going to be complicated. So I want you to bear with me. This is one of those sermons that may be one of the most boring you have ever heard, but if you will listen to what the Word has to say and you will reflect on it, it will be exhilarating. I'm afraid... In this day and age in which we live, we're so used to being dumbed down with everything that we, we, we really don't appreciate what's in the Word. In fact, I'm reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven three. He says, I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now, ignorance always grows well in the soil of 
deception. And there's no greater season for deception to be prevalent than in the Christmas season. I think you all realize that. Sometimes Christmas is nothing more than one of those predictable Hallmark movies where you always know what's going to happen, but you still watch it because there's not much else on TV that you can watch these days, right? But like no other time of the year, the Christmas season is a time where weeds of error begin to flourish, where thistles of blasphemy, frankly, begin to grow and myths begin to fill people's minds and hearts. So my purpose this morning is to uproot some of those, some of those weeds and get rid of some of those thistles that may have perhaps been growing up in your Christological garden, all right? So let's look at what the Word has to say as we endeavor to know more of who Christ is and exalt his person and his work. So look at Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. Follow along. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, there are at least four amazing truths that emerge from this text that can fan the flames of our worship into a roaring fire. We're going to look at Christ from four different perspectives. We're going to look at, first of all, his royal lineage, secondly, his physical lineage, his virgin birth, and finally, his eternal sonship. Now, before we look at this more closely, let me remind you that the four Gospels depict the Lord Jesus Christ in his humiliation. And at the end of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, we see him depicted in his glorification. And each of the four Gospels have a distinct yet overlapping emphasis in their uh, depiction of Jesus. Matthew speaks of him as the sovereign king. Mark as the suffering servant, Luke as the son of man, and John as the son of God. And these truths are essential to the gospel message. In fact, the entire superstructure of the Christian faith is built upon the incarnation of Christ, who is both fully human and fully God. So here in Matthew 1, 18 through 25, we have this, this detailed announcement 
of the birth of the Lord Jesus. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, yet she is now pregnant, not because of any kind of immoral union with Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. Moreover, interestingly enough, Joseph is called the son of David, and we see that the son's name is to be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this son Jesus was, be, was also to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of a virgin birth, of a son that would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, this detailed information was extremely important to the Jewish people of that day as it should be to all of us, because they would have to verify his claim to be the son of David, their Messiah and king. Now, later on in Matthew 22, Jesus will speak to the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel. In verse 42, we read this. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? In other words, what do you know of his genealogical record? What do you know of his ancestry? From what Jewish line has he descended? That's what he's saying. The text says, and they said to him, the son of David, which was the most common messianic title used in that day. Now, Jesus knew that they knew all of this because they kept meticulous genealogical records. You think the Mormons are big on it. The Jews are much bigger even to this day. So no one could hold any position of authority or responsibility without verification of their genealogy. And in Matthew 22, Jesus went on to, in that passage, to demonstrate that not only must the Christ be the physical descendant of David, but also the Messiah, as the Messiah, he would have to be the Son of God something they did not understand. Jesus was therefore not only underscoring his royal lineage, but he was also asserting his deity. And that's what really got them upset. This was disconcerting to the Pharisees. In fact, in verse 46, it says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. (laughs) Now, here's what's fascinating. I want you to notice what precedes the account of the birth of Christ, beginning in verse 18, that I just read. And it's that passage that no one pays much attention to because it's that detailed genealogical record. Now, mind you, we're not going to get into all of the weeds of this, but we're going to get into some of it. So first of all, let's think about Christ with respect to his royal lineage. Notice Matthew 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on to continue in great detail. And here we learn that Jesus was by birth the one promised to Abraham. And we see this back in in Genesis chapter 12, uh, a covenant made some 2,000 years before Jesus was born. And he was therefore the descendant of King David, the son of David. So the Messiah King would be the one that God promised to David, and we read about this earlier in 2 Samuel 7, the future son 
of David that would establish David's kingdom forever. Now, we're not going to go into, into great detail, detail, as I said, to look at all of these, but you, all of the details of the genealogical record. But I do want you to know that they were never, ever disputed by the Jews, which is very important to bear in mind. Matthew's genealogy moves forward from Abraham to Joseph, who was Jesus' legal, not physical, but his legal father. And this was crucial because the royal line had to be passed through the legal father. But since Jesus had no human father, his royal lineage had to come from a father the Jews would consider to be his legal father. And obviously that was Joseph, one that could adopt him and grant him all of the legal rights and privileges of a son. And that was Joseph, his, his, his foster father, you might say. And this was never in dispute, ever. In fact, in Luke 4, 22, while Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, the people were speaking well of him, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Now, there well may have been a, a second reason for Matthew's record to underscore the claim of the virgin birth. It may have also been an attempt to distinguish that virgin birth from other virgin birth myths that were going around in that particular era of history. The ancient Babylonians uh, had their version. The Sumerians, the Akkadians had theirs. The Buddhists, the Hindus. Even the Greeks believed that, that Zeus em empowered a snake to impregnate a, a virgin goddess, Olympias, who bore a son named Alexander the Great. So you have all of this stuff going on in that era of history. Furthermore, Matthew's account, along with Luke's account later on, also served to refute a common myth that was going around that a Roman soldier got Mary pregnant or that Joseph defiled her out of, out of wedlock. Now, allow me a bit of a digression here, because this is so fascinating, but I believe it's one that, that, that is worth discussing. As we look briefly at Jesus' royal lineage, there is a fascinating footnote that we see in the text. Look at verse 11. There we read, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brother at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and so on. Now, this is one of those passages that you just read over and, well, okay, so, so be it. But what is fascinating, if you go back in the Old Testament and you look at Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30, we see that God pronounced a curse on this character, Jeconiah. And he's also called, called Jehoiakim and Kaniah. He, he ruled only three months before taken into captivity. But that curse stated that he would never have a son that would, be, that would sit on the throne of David. Hmm, well, that's interesting. So obviously, that would eliminate Jesus from coming from his bloodline. But God remedied that because Jesus' bloodline to the throne of David came through Mary from Nathan, Solomon's brother, 
not Solomon, who came from Jeconiah's line, to which Joseph belonged. Really fascinating. And don't you know the Jews would have spotted this in a heartbeat if, 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 they, if that were really true? And if he had even one cell of Joseph's blood flowing through his veins, he would have been disqualified. He could not be in the line descending from David through Jeconiah. So God bypassed this curse. How did he do it? Through the virgin birth. Fascinating. Yet at the same time, he gives Jesus the royal right to reign as the legal heir of his father and the blood heir of his mother who descended from David through Nathan. Now, look at verse 16. We see that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Now, what's interesting here is by whom in the original language is in the feminine, not the masculine gender, clearly indicating that Jesus was not born by Joseph, but by Mary. Very important. Once again, we witness the miracle, dear friends, of the inspiration of Scripture, where the Holy Spirit superintended his authors to write precisely the record that would validate Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, a stunning miracle of divine providence. So Matthew establishes these crucial concerns from the very outset of his gospel. Remember, his focus is going to be on Jesus, the sovereign king. But Jesus had to be more than the legal heir to be on, uh, to the throne of David. He had to be more than, than just part of that royal um, lineage. He, he also had to be fully God in order to sacrifice himself on the cross, a sacrifice of infinite value. But he, he also had to be fully human to die in our stead, to pay the penalty for our sins in order to conquer death in order to rise again from the grave and, and to guarantee the resurrection of all who trust in him. So Jesus had to also be the physical descendant of King David. The human blood, you might say, of Abraham through David had to flow through his veins. The very DNA had to, their very DNA had to make up his physical body. And that's what we see. Now, how did, how did this come about? Well, the Holy Spirit did two things. First of all, he follows the genealogical record with, with this, this detailed account of his divine conception through the Virgin Mary that we read about. But second, he carefully details a second genealogy through his inspired author, Luke. And we read about that in Luke 3. Let's look at that for a moment. Now, bear in mind... Let me re remind you of this. Matthew gives us his royal lineage, which is Joseph's genealogy. Luke gives us his physical lineage, beginning in Luke 3, verses 23 through 38, which is Mary's genealogy. Unlike Matthew's, and, and by the way, here we, here we see his physical 
lineage. We move from his royal lineage to his physical lineage. Now, unlike Matthew's genealogy that starts with Abraham and moves forward in time to, to, to Joseph, making it Joseph's genealogy, Luke's genealogy begins with Jesus and moves backward all the way to Adam, making this Mary's genealogy. And this demonstrates Jesus' actual bloodline. Think of it this way. Matthew traces Jesus' Jewish ancestry beginning with Abraham, whereas Luke traces his identification with the entirety of the human race. Jesus is the son of Adam. However, unlike the disobedient Adam, Jesus is the obedient second Adam, while at the same time being the true son of God. Now, bear in mind, Joseph and Mary's claim that that they had been sexually pure during the time of their betrothal and that the child she bore was conceived by the Holy Spirit was a story that most people found pretty ludicrous. Can you imagine trying to explain that? Imagine Mary trying to explain what the angel said to her in Luke one thirty-two. Folks, let me tell you, here's what the angel said. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Now, as soon as she made that claim, the rulers of Israel would go to the genealogical record to refute even the possibility of these nobody teenagers saying what was really true. But instead, the records actually corroborated what they said. Matthew immediately established Jesus' ancestry, connecting it with the Old Testament and with Israel, but Luke interestingly enough, waits until Jesus is in his ministry when Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. And that is when, this would have been sometime in Jesus' 30s, and that's when he claimed to be the Son of God, which shook the Jews to the core, and that's when Luke gives his genealogy. And it must be noted that Luke also makes it clear in chapter 1, that indeed this was a virgin birth. Remember in verse 34, we read, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. We then see this emphasis In the genealogical record later on in chapter 3, verse 23, we read, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. As was supposed. It could be translated, so it was thought, but that was not the case. What a marvelous thing God did in these accounts. Not only did he prove Jesus' royal and physical lineage, but he also vindicated, shall we say, and protected Mary and Joseph from certain scorn. So we've seen some of the royal and the physical lineage revealed in Scripture. Let's look thirdly at his virgin birth. 
Back to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. And by the way, my purpose here is not to carefully exposit every word of this text, but to help you just focus on this concept of the virgin birth. There in verse 18 we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now bear in mind, a Hebrew marriage was actually a contract between families, the families of the bride and the groom. And this contract included a, a dowry, a mohar, um, paid by the groom's family to the father of the bride. Too bad, guys, we don't have that these days, right? But this was to pay for the wedding expenses, which, by the way, were typically a lot. They, their weddings lasted about seven days, and you had to feed a whole lot of people. And the bride's father would also hold a portion of the dowry in trust uh, for his daughter as kind of a life insurance policy for her if the husband died. And by the way, if he divorced her, uh, the husband would never see any of the mother until the father-in-law died. So that's how it worked. But anyway, a Jewish wedding custom included two stages, and and both of them were, were equally sacred. There was, first of all, the kiddushin, Uh, which was the betrothal, or uh, we would call it an engagement period. And that included a contract. The couple was considered legally married, even though the marriage had not officially taken place, and it certainly had not been consummated. And the betrothal usually lasted 12 months. The reason for that was to prove that the bride was not pregnant and that the couple were dedicated to sexual purity. But not only did it include this kiddushin, but also the chuppah, which was the marriage ceremony itself that would come later on. Now, obviously, Mary's pregnancy required a great deal of explanation here. In verse 18, we read, Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Knowing he was not the father, Joseph's reaction was therefore to be expected when he finds out that his bride-to-be is pregnant. Verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. You know, he could have demanded her public humiliation, perhaps even stoning on the basis of of, uh, Deuteronomy 22. But because of his godly compassion and his undying love, For Mary, he chose instead to have just a private divorce proceeding. But notice what happened in verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph knew that what Mary had told him about the angelic announcement to her, recorded in Luke 1, was in fact true. He knew that. Verse 21 goes on and says, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, Now all this took place, that what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, and here he quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife 
And he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, beloved, please understand, apart from the virgin birth, there would be no incarnation. Had Jesus been an illegitimate son, his claim to deity would be a laughable lie. You see, we must remember that the work of redemption required a theanthropon. It required a God-man, one who could, who, who, who could supernaturally fuse the human nature with the divine into an indissoluble bond. That's what was required. A man had to suffer a punishment that only God could ultimately endure. A man had to be a substitute to bear the punishment for all who would believe in him, but yet only God would be able to endure the full wrath of God that we deserve. A perfect man had to die, and yet only God is holy. Human flesh had to go to the grave, but only God could overcome the grave. God had to make provision to become flesh so that he might make us partakers of the divine nature and grant us his indwelling spirit. Folks, think about this. How could Christ ever become our faithful high priest and sympathize with our infirmities if he were not both God and man? Neither man alone nor God alone could accomplish these things. Both the human and the divine natures had to be supernaturally woven together, an inscrutable mystery beyond our finding out. And it's staggering when you think about these two natures of Christ. Whenever I reflect upon it, I, you know how your brain just comes to a point and it just kind of stops? It's like thinking about eternity and when that's going to end. <laughs> I mean, think about this. Even as a fetus, Growing in his mother's womb, he was upholding all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3. He required milk from his mother's breast. And yet in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17. In his humanness, he would grow hungry. He, he would grow thirsty. He would grow tired. He would feel pain. Yet in his divinity, he could multiply bread and fish and turn water into wine. While on the boat with the disciples, he slept from exhaustion. Yet at the same time, he was able to rise from his slumber as the omnipotent Lord of the universe and calm the storm and the waves of the sea with a word. His human nature has now descended into heaven. But think about this. Because of his divine nature, he continues to be omnipresent. He's with us here right now. Absolutely incomprehensible. And for this reason, he could say in Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. In his humanness, we know, according to Hebrews 4.15, that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Literally, he could not sin. In fact, in his divinity, he was really not even tempted. 
because God cannot be tempted with evil, James 1.13. Jesus had no sin nature, therefore he could never sin. Hebrews 7.26 says he was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. 1 Peter 1.19, he was a lamb, unblemished and spotless. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who what? Knew no sin be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yes, the incarnation required the virgin birth in order to fuse the human and the divine nature together. And this was not only prophesied by Isaiah, but also by Moses. Remember way back in Genesis 3.15. Remember that story? After cursing the physical serpent, he turned to Satan, the the spiritual serpent that had seduced Adam and Eve and, and, and promised a perpetual battle that would exist from that day on. And that battle would be between, according to Genesis 3.15, your seed, referring to Satan's offspring, unbelievers, and her seed, meaning her descendant, Christ, and all who would belong to him. By the way, the term seed can be understood in a collective sense, uh, referring to all who would make up the the, the progeny of, of Satan and Eve, but it can also be understood in a, in a singular, final, and glorious product of a woman, one born without the seed of a male, but of the woman and the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4 and verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Interesting. No mention of a man confirming Jesus' virgin birth and his humanity. So we've reflected upon his royal and his physical lineage and his virgin birth. Finally, let's focus a moment on his eternal sonship. Back to Matthew 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And the angel reveals more about this son when he appeared to Mary in Luke one thirty-two. There we read, he will be called the son of the most high. The son of the most high. You see, not only was Jesus Christ the Messiah, the king of Israel, fully God, yet fully man, born of a virgin, but he was the eternal son of God before he was even conceived and born. He did not become the Son of God at his incarnation, as some claim. Scripture teaches that a father-son relationship had, had, had always, has always existed in eternity past between the Father and Christ the Son. Again, back to Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, Likewise, Romans 1, 3, God promised his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, some will argue that Jesus assumed the role of the son at his incarnation, a subordinate role that he did not have uh, prior to the incarnation. They will often use Hebrews 1, 5, which is a quotation of Psalm 2 and verse 7 as a proof text. There we read, You are my son, today I have begotten you. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Now, since begetting often 
speaks of a person's origin. And since a son is typically subordinate to their fathers, this would seem to support that view. And indeed, Christ was equal with God, and he voluntarily submitted to his father to do his father's will. We know that he willingly set aside his divine attributes in his incarnation. We read about that in the Kenosis passage in Philippians 2, also in, in John chapter 5. But we must understand that the context that the writer of Hebrew or, or of Psalm 2, that the writer of Hebrews was alluding to, must be understood figuratively, not literally. This day I have begotten thee is therefore a reference to the eternal decree of God, not a reference to a specific event in time. Now, since the term begotten can often mean origin, or in other words, of one's offspring, it's natural to assume this idea that the begetting of a son speaks of conception, that at a point in time, a child is going to come into being, a child is going to come into existence. And many apply this understanding to the conception of Christ. But there are several problems with this. It was the Holy Spirit, not the Father, who conceived the incarnate Christ. This alone eliminates the idea that the Father is begetting or originating the Son, the, the son as they would allude to from Psalm 2 and, and also John 1.14. It obviously must refer to something more than conception, this idea of begetting. And secondly, John 1, verses 1 through 3, that I might preach on next Sunday, makes it abundantly clear that Christ is not a created being. Christ is not a created being. He was in the beginning with God. So what does begetting refer to? if not to origin. What's he speaking of here? Other passages speak of Christ as the only begotten of the Father. John 1, 14, verse 18, 3, 16, verse 18, Hebrews 11, verse 17. Well, the answer is this. The term only begotten, monogenes in the original language, can mean something far more than just merely the origin of one's offspring. It literally means one of a kind. One of a kind. We see this in the created order. Every creature begets its own unique offspring after its kind. Genesis 1, right? After its kind. Every offspring bears the exact likeness of its parent. That's the idea. And when applied to Christ, this would emphasize his utter uniqueness and his utter likeness to his father. Hebrews 1.3, we read, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So when the Holy Spirit uses the term begotten, he's not speaking of origin but of the absolute uniqueness and oneness in essence between the Father and the Son, all of which is consistent with the essential oneness found in the triune Godhead. Moreover, Scripture's primary use of the title Son of God reveals that it speaks of his essential deity and absolute equality with God, not 
his voluntary subordination or submission to the Father. That's not what he's speaking about here. And this was precisely the issue in John 5 that infuriated the Jewish leaders. When they charged Jesus with blasphemy, according to verse 18, we read, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So again, the title Son of God speaks of his deity and equality with God, not his submission to the Father. John MacArthur says, quote, Human father-son relationships are merely earthly pictures of an infinitely greater heavenly reality. The one true archetypical father-son relationship exists eternally within the Trinity. All others are merely earthly replicas, imperfect because they are bound up in our finiteness, yet illustrating a vital, eternal reality. So, dear friends, when we consider Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, don't be confused and start thinking in terms of procreation. By the way, a lot of the cults do this. But rather understand these concepts of conveying the transcendent truths pertaining to the essential oneness that is shared by the members of the triune Godhead, the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the utter the, the utter uniqueness of Christ and, and the perfect likeness and essence that he has with the Father and with the Spirit. What an unfathomable concept, right? You see, in his incarnation, he remained the eternal Son of God. That never went away. He remained fully divine, yet he became what he previously had not been, and that was fully human. You kids are going to laugh at me, but there goes my brain, right? Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. In fact, Jesus did not give up his human nature after his death and resurrection. You see, he did not temporarily become a man. You realize that? But rather, his divine nature was permanently joined to his human nature. You will recall that when he appeared to his disciples as a man after the resurrection, they saw the scars in his hands, nail prints in his hands. He was flesh and bone. He ate food. If you were to see Christ now, he would look like a human. He was taken up into heaven while talking with his disciples, and the angel promised, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Stephen gazed into heaven. And he said, he said of Jesus that he was the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Acts 7.56. Stephen didn't see some ghost or some weird thing. He saw a man. In John's vision and revelation... He sees Jesus in, in his resplendent glory, and yet he describes him as one like a son of man, Revelation 1.13. And what did Paul say? Remember in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, he is the one who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, dear friend, if you're here today and you don't love Christ and you have no real desire to serve him, maybe you just play church, you just play Christian like most people do, I plead with you to get serious about truly loving and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him in saving faith, repentant faith. Don't be a person that's just a Christian in name only. Know this, that one day you will bow before him. You will either bow in worship or in terror. But you will bow. And dear Christian, my, aren't these truths amazing? When you think of who Jesus really is, may I challenge you to meditate upon these things, incomprehensible truths, so that our hearts will resonate with the hymnist who captured the essence of of the angelic praise when he wrote, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with me to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Beloved, the more you know of who Christ is, the more you will love him. And the more you will worship him, the more you will serve him. The more you will experience the joy of his presence and his power in your life. And the more you will loosen your grip on the things of this world that are passing away. So let's celebrate these things and look for our Lord and our King to return in all of his glory. Won't that be amazing? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. Thank you for our Savior and our King, the one of a kind, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's before the triune Godhead that we bow even here this day, celebrating your grace and your love for us. And for those that really don't know you, I pray that you will bring conviction to their heart as only you can do and that today will be the day that they bow their knee in worship to the only God who can save them, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.